Okay, well, it's good to see you guys. Glad you all get along. At least that's the assumption. Okay, well, um, as you know from two weeks ago, when we were together uh, in the, the text, um, we know that Isaiah 53 is a prophecy about <clears throat> the sacrifice of Christ. Um, but there's something uh, not entirely unique about this particular prophecy, uh, but it is very descriptive as far as the nature of Jesus' sacrifice. What was actually happening? What was he doing? And we talk about um, the nature of the atonement uh, being two things, that it was, it was penal and it was substitutional. Um, and the theological term is vicarious rather than substitutional, meaning in the place of, okay? So Jesus, uh, in, in regard to the penal nature, he suffered a penalty, but it was for someone else. The, the penalty he suffered was not for crimes that he committed. He suffered for the crimes that we committed and the crimes we committed against heaven. And the, it's the nature of the atonement that is so important, so valuable to the gospel itself, because without it, there, there is no gospel. If he was not penalized for what we've done wrong, the penalty for our sin remains. The, the payment remains outstanding. Uh, we're still in our sins. But because he took our place in judgment, <clears throat> he's then able to pardon the sinner. Now, the, the really important thing about Isaiah 53 is what is currently happening in theological circles um, across Western culture. And that is the, the challenge of those two main things, the penal and vicarious nature of the cross. Um, and the, the challenges are coming from scholars, or those that we call scholars. Uh, you know, anybody can get their PhD today, right? And uh, they're, they're post hole digger. Um, but... And so this is actually one of the reasons I'm more and more reluctant to send our, our young people to Bible colleges or seminaries. You know, every major heresy um, in church history has come out of our religious institutions. So when somebody tells me <clears throat> that they have their MDiv or their doctorate in, you know, some um, religious thing, my first question is, from who? <clears throat> and... And so we see all kinds of things that actually, you know, foundationally that are being challenged. Um, we had a, a youth pastor recently, not recently, a few years ago that came to a church in town who had just graduated from a major denominational school and came and he was taught. And so he regurgitated that not all of the Bible is the word of God. He does not believe that all of it is the word of God. And so what it is, it's what we've called a, a partial inspiration view. And, uh, and the question is always, who decides what is inspired in the Bible and what is not? So you have all of these challenges going on. It makes Bible colleges and seminaries more and more dangerous. We have to be far more careful, you know, very specific in the selection of them. But one of these things that are being challenged uh, by Bible colleges, seminaries, <clears throat> is the idea of the nature of Jesus' atonement. And uh, the, the language that they're using to challenge it uh, makes God look like a criminal, okay? Uh, they say that the idea of, of penal 
and substitutional atonement is, is cosmic child abuse. Well, that language sounds so terrible, and nobody wants to say that they believe in cosmic child abuse. And so if that's what the atonement is, uh, we need to rethink and redefine, right? Because we don't want to accuse God of abusing his child, uh, convicting him of some kind of crime. Um, yeah. So, but the problem with the, the more recent challenges to the atonement is that it, it's really avoiding the language of Scripture, okay, and what it is that God says the, about the atonement. And as far as I remember, uh, Jesus volunteered to do the work of the atonement. He, know, he knew why he came. In fact, he, he was part of the, the, the counsel of God before creation to advance this plan in order to redeem humanity. So it, it's very strange. Um, but when we get to Isaiah 53, we find out that this is actually the field upon which the battle must be fought because the description found there clearly portrays this servant of God being penalized for the offenses of others, right? And the result of his suffering is the salvation of all who believe. So um, when I read the text again to you, I want you to pay attention to um, the language itself as far as substitution and the servant being penalized, all right? Okay, so why don't you please stand? I'm actually going to back up to chapter 52, verse 13, where the prophecy begins. Uh, we mentioned before that whoever put the, the chapter numbers and verses in here, they weren't paying attention when they did this. Um, and so when it, these numbers are not inspired. Okay, the words are. <clears throat> all right, so Isaiah 52 Verse 13, we'll read all the way through 53, which is 12 verses. God says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a shoot out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness, no majesty. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now here's the language. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, literally punishment, for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. 
He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Father, nothing could be more clear from the text of Isaiah 53 that the Son of God was punished for the sins of others. And Lord, we're grateful for that. We're thankful because if we had to stand in judgment, we would be judged forever. So Lord, thank you. Lord, I pray that you would be with us tonight, that you would bring greater clarity to your word, to the nature of the gospel. And Lord, that we would be assured and encouraged. Lord, for those that have believed, they are saved, not by what we have done, but purely based upon the atonement of Christ. So Lord, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Yeah, go ahead and be seated. All the fun variety of phone tones that we get to hear in church. I think I've had my same tone for the duration of my phone. I just lack creativity. <clears throat> so, so last time we, we ended with two questions. Uh, the first being, uh, how would man treat the man who bears all the sin and guilt of man? Well, our text uh, tells us exactly what the world would do to that man. Uh, it says they would disfigure him more than any man, chapter 52, verse 14. They would despise and reject him, moving into chapter 53. They would shun him. They would lowly esteem and look down on him. Uh, we would wound, bruise, punish, and scourge him. We would oppress and afflict him. We would prepare him a grave among the wicked, and then we would demand his death. It's interesting that we would kill the one that was guilty of our sins. That's what, not just what we would do, but it's what we did do. The question now in the text is um, this. What would God do to the man who bore all the guilt of man? What would God do? So we'll explore that um, as we go through the chapter. All right. We're going to pick it up in verse 10. We left off there with some startling words. He says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I don't think he could have crammed more things into that verse than he did. Okay? So what would God do to the man that was guilty of all the world's sins? Well, the text says that he would bruise him, uh, which literally means to crush he, and then he would put him to grief and he would deliver him up as a sin offering, a guilt offering. Okay? Of course, language that comes from the book of Leviticus. Let's exposit the text. 
It says that it pleased the Lord to bruise or crush. Oftentimes the idea is to beat him down, to bring him down. Um, Two things about the statement I think that need examining. The text says the Lord, and in in, uh, my version, the New King James Version, L-O-R-D or a capital, so it's Yahweh. Yahweh bruised him. And then the text says that uh, the Lord was pleased to do it. The Lord bruised him, and the Lord was pleased to do it. So let's talk about the Lord's, Yahweh's part in the suffering of Jesus. We typically attribute uh, the suffering of Christ to the in- injustice and wickedness of man, okay, which isn't wrong, but it, it, it doesn't occur to us as often that it was the Father who inflicted suffering upon his Son. It's actually both. God and man caused the suffering of Jesus, but for completely different reasons, okay? The religious leaders of Israel, they wanted to dispose of Jesus, and as we learn from the Gospels, it was because of jealousy and pride. Okay, of course, uh, he had uh, violated their idea of the Sabbath, and he, uh, he was claiming to be God. They used all of those as cover so that they didn't have to say, we're jealous of him and we're proud, okay? Yeah. They despised Jesus because the people were so attracted to him, okay? And they could not bear his rebuke or being corrected by him publicly. That's what it boiled down to, okay? Uh, his claims of deity, they couldn't bear that no matter you know, how often he proved it to them, but they couldn't stand it, okay? So on man's part, the, the suffering inflicted on Christ, it was wicked, it was unjust, but on the Father's part, it was just, it was righteous. Okay, Christ was God in the flesh who came to be the instrument by which he would put away the sins of man and then reconcile all things to himself, as Ephesians and Colossians tell us. So this whole, the whole drama of the crucifixion, it, it's, it's so interesting as you look at the divine uh, side of things and then you look at the human side. You know, wicked man, uh, us, we were the instrument by which God punished Christ for our sins. Remember, as we go through the text, um, we offended God, and God came in the flesh to be punished for how we offended him. It's very interesting. So God used wicked humanity, which is all of us, as the instruments by which he would punish Christ for our sins. Okay, so man subjected Christ to the cross because of their hatred for Christ, but the Father subjected Christ to the cross because of his love for man. That's what this is about. So both man and God are at play in the crucifixion, but it's all under the ordination of God. This is one of those passages that make your head spin because it talks about the divine and the human. It says, men of Israel, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So he was delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, and then by them, by their wicked hands, they crucified him. It's crazy. Determined purpose, foreknowledge of God. So that just means that God had 
all of this planned out in advance. The question is, how far in advance? Well, we can go back to Psalm 22, which is 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before Christ. And Psalm 22 describes the, the crucifixion to us in, in detail. Okay? But it, it's earlier than that. Revelation 13.8 says, and he says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So speaking, you know, here in Revelation at the time of the great tribulation, John is talking about the book of the lamb, but the lamb is the one who was slain from the foundation of the world. So in the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, Jesus was slain before the creation of the world, before time, even before sin. God had determined all this, okay? So we could say it like this, before time, God predetermined, and in time, man fulfilled God's plan. Yeah. Jesus was the preordained instrument of God to put away sin, and it was wicked man that God used to punish sin. He did not coerce, the wickedness of man, okay? But he certainly used their wickedness, our wickedness, to secure God's righteous ends. I mean, man was all too willing to cooperate in this, yeah? So it was the Father's doing with the cooperation of evil man. God used man to punish Jesus for what man did against God. We could say what they meant for evil, God meant for good, Let's look at our text again to talk about the second question. How could the suffering and humiliation of Christ please the Father? How could he delight in such a thing? It says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. There's probably many illustrations that we could use to, to try to explain this. It's probably something like a father who is pleased to have his son undergo a surgery to remove a deadly cancer, okay? It brings relief that there's a remedy to stop the cancer and to restore life, even if the process is painful. Okay? So when we look at the, from the father's perspective and the son's perspective, okay, for, the, for both of them, there's joy set before them, even though the path to joy is marked by suffering. Okay? Hebrews, a book of Hebrews talks about that. So Jesus wasn't merely punished for the sins of humanity, Uh, The crucifixion, really, it cannot be reduced to a lesson in divine justice or simply, you know, a demonstration of of how much God hates sin. Okay, that's all true of his suffering, but none of those things are an end in themselves, okay? It pleased the Father because of what Jesus' suffering would accomplish in eternity. There's so many things. Let me give you three. His atonement would ultimately bring an end to all sin, and it was the only way to bring an end to all sin. Well, he could annihilate everybody, but that would go against the, the, the very purpose for which he created man. Okay? So there's another option. It's just, it's even uglier than uh, the former. Okay? And then his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, would justify the believing sinner. And then as Ephesians and Colossians says, through this, he could reconcile all things to himself. It was about redemption, reconciliation for the glory of God. All of this was a pursuit of love. Some people have answered, you know, um, how could it please the Father to bruise him? Because God so loved the world, okay? And also, like Abraham, he knew he'd get his son back, amen? 
He knew he'd get his son back. But the God the Father wasn't believing that Jesus would rise from the dead. He brought him out of the grave. Yeah. And that's actually the proof from the Father to us that the atonement accomplished uh, what it was intended to do. John says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is interesting. Love and propitiation. Okay, so God's love for us is, uh, motivated him to provide propitiation. I know that's not a word we commonly use in English. Um, to propitiate means to satisfy wrath or to appease wrath. It means to uh, quench wrath. So the wickedness of man has provoked the righteous wrath of God and his righteous indignation looms over the unredeemed. John 3.36 says, the wrath of God abides on the unbeliever because he has not embraced Christ and the atonement that he offered. And this kind of righteousness could only be satisfied by way of perfect propitiation through a worthy sacrifice that could atone for man's sin. So wrath cannot be removed until sin is completely atoned for, completely. Okay. So in order to accomplish that, God came to earth as a man in the person of Jesus who bore the sins of all men, endured their punishment, and by his blood atoned for their sins and satisfied divine justice on our behalf. So um, I was listening to Pastor Isaac talk to somebody the other day about, um, I can't remember exactly how he phrased it, but we always talk about, are you saved? Well, the question is, what are we saved from? Uh, A.W. Tozer said, we're saved from God. <laughs> he would say, we hide in Christ to be saved from God. Okay? We take refuge in Jesus because he is the one that bore the wrath of God on our behalf. Okay? So Jesus came on a rescue mission to save us from the wrath of God. That we so deserved. As Isaiah says, <clears throat> when you make his soul of the servant, an offering for sin. He was a sin offering, a sin offering. When you read Leviticus, um, you have uh, different kinds of offerings, right? And the sin offering is the big one. I mean, there's burnt offerings, which is a, a way of saying, I dedicate my life to you. Because in the burnt offering, the entire sacrifice was consumed on the altar. So all of the sacrifice and smoke went up to heaven. So it all belongs to God. Well, that's not the kind of offering Jesus was. Okay, he was a sin offering, a guilt offering. So the Israelites, when they committed sin, they would take a lamb without blemish, which represented moral purity, and they would offer it on the altar in the temple. And what is happening in this whole ceremony is that the life of the animal was a substitute. He would take the place of the sinner before judgment. And as we read the text, they would put their hands on the sacrifice and they would be confessing their sins, which are imputed to the lamb that is innocent. And then the lamb's throat would be cut. It would give its life in the place of the sinner. The blood of the lamb would be collected in the bowl. And then the bowl would be brought before the altar. And then that blood would be sprinkled, representing the washing away of the sin. So it's all, it's all penal and vicarious. Okay? The person would be spared. Their sins would be pardoned. But in the Old Testament, as we know, it's only temporary. 
It's only temporary. It's only by the offering of Christ that our sins are put away permanently and life eternal is granted. But notice, we did not and we could not bring this offering ourselves. We would not, okay? We would not. It's God who offered his son on our behalf. You know, no one seeks after God, Paul says in Romans 3. John says, it's not that we loved him. We were God-haters. We were on the run. We were rebellious. So God came to us when we were at our worst, and he gave us his best. Let's continue. This is where the language gets really fun. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Notice the implication that's embedded in the text. Because see, verse 8 says that he was cut off from the land of the living. He was murdered. Verse 12 says that he poured out his soul unto death. So this servant of the Lord, he was killed. He was killed. How then will he see his seed? That is, how will he witness the fruit of his labor, the product of his atonement, if he's dead? How will he do that? Because he will prolong his days. Your days can only be prolonged after death if you are what? You're resurrected. That's right. Okay. Jesus is alive. Amen. But here it's saying he's alive as a witness to what he accomplished at Calvary. He's alive for the pleasure of the Lord to prosper in his hand. That's great. Psalm 1610 is not the only Old Testament reference to the resurrection of Christ. Uh, it's also right here. Okay. It says, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. I don't know why verse is there. I'm going to assume that I did it, okay? Like seeing his seed, okay, he will witness the labor of his soul. His soul was offered up as a sin offering. That is, he died. So if he's going to see the fruit of his death, he has to come alive to do that, okay? Yeah. So by his resurrection, Jesus has witnessed 2,000 years worth of soul harvesting. If he were dead, I was, we're all on the same understanding of death, right? We don't witness things when we're dead. Okay, he's a witness. And then the father says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. I like this. His divine understanding, his infinite knowledge worked out the details of redemption, okay? If he were to pardon humanity for the, out of the crimes that they committed against him, okay, he would need to bear their iniquities. He would need to die in their place. If humanity were to bear their own iniquities, which they committed against an infinite God, they would have to bear them for eternity. It's not like sinning against a finite human being, when you sin against another man, you sin against the finite. You sin against the infinite God, your crime is infinite. And so the penalty then follows. Okay. Also notice, the servant of the Lord is righteous, and he can therefore justify who? Many. Okay. Now he can justify everyone, but will everybody be justified? No. No. In order to do that, he'd have to coerce people. And that's not the nature of love. Okay. Now this is interesting here. The words righteous and justified, they come from the same family of words in the Hebrew. Okay? It's also true uh, for the same words in Greek. Uh, the first is the adjective and the other is in the verb form. So it's the righteous one 
who declares the unrighteous ones righteous in his sight. And all this happens by imputation. The, the, the key word there is justifies, justifies. What does that mean for someone to justify another? It means to declare right. It means to declare right, okay? The righteous one takes his righteousness and he imputes it to the account of the sinner, okay? So that the sinner is considered righteous in his sight. That is the judge's sight. Okay, so listen carefully because we're going to have to talk about Romans 3 and Romans 4 because that's uh, the ideas there are, are, be, are being communicated here. The sinner, that's you and me, at the moment of imputation, that is when Christ's righteousness was imputed to us, we did not become righteous. We're only considered to be righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus. This is what we call the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Okay? Uh, Romans 3.21 to Romans 4.25 is, is Paul's thesis on this whole thing. And the interesting thing about imputation is that it goes both ways. So when it comes to this whole thing of the gospel, our sins were imputed to Christ. Did Jesus become a sinner? Absolutely not. He's untouchable when it comes to sin. Okay, he did not become a sinner, but he was considered the sinner of all sinners. When, when the suffering of Christ began, it began because all of the collective sins of humanity was imputed to him. And then he was treated like the sinner of all sinners. Okay, he was considered to be that. And because of that, he was then punished for the sins of humanity, which we've talked about completely paid our debt. And then when the sinner repents and trusts in Jesus, Jesus's righteousness is imputed to the sinner. Same imputation. Do we become righteous? No, we do not, okay? But we are considered to be righteous in God's sight. And then because of Jesus's righteousness, we are rewarded. We're granted eternal life, okay? Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5:21, he said that the Father made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is, in a legal standing in him before the Father. So some scholars have called this the great exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. Okay? He does not become a sinner. We do not become righteous in that. We become redeemed. Okay? We are adopted. We're regenerate through that, but we have not yet become righteous. Paul says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies who? The ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, or it's imputed to him for righteousness. It's the same word. So in the Greek, to justify is a legal declaration by which a criminal is said to be innocent as far as the law is concerned. Okay, it doesn't mean that he didn't break the law because who did he declare righteous in this verse? The righteous? The ungodly. The ungodly, okay? This just means that there's no evidence to demonstrate that he did commit a crime and therefore he's considered to have a right standing or relationship with the law. God justifies, that is, he declares the ungodly to be righteous because there's no evidence of sin. How could there be no evidence of sin? Blood, blood. So you remember on the day of atonement, the high priest would 
enter into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. What was underneath the mercy seat? The Ten Commandments, okay? Aaron's rod that budded, and the jar of manna. All things that Israel rebelled against. All of Israel's sin was on the mercy seat, under it. And when the blood is sprinkled upon it, God cannot see the offense. So Israel then at that time is treated as though none of that ever happened. They're considered righteous and treated accordingly. That's the nature of all this. And by the way, God only justifies the ungodly because there's no one else to justify. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But because of the suffering of Christ, the sinner's penalty has been paid. And because of the blood of Christ, the sinner's guilt has been washed away, leaving no evidence of the crimes. Okay? If God holds your sin against you, you are lost forever. Forever. That's what divine justice demands. So all of your sin, every ounce of your sin has to be washed away. And then a righteousness that is not your own has to be imputed to you in order for God to consider you righteous in his sight, in order for him to receive you. It's based purely upon the merits of Christ that we come before him. Amazing. So then the question is, how does God make us righteous? How does he do that? What happens is people confuse two different doctrines. They confuse the doctrine of justification with the doctrine of sanctification. He justifies the ungodly. That's, he just declares them righteous. But he doesn't infuse righteousness in them. He doesn't make them righteous. That's a heresy of actually Catholicism. Okay? He doesn't make us righteous. He declares us righteous. And then he begins the process of sanctification. Justification is a past-completed event in the life of the believer. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified. It's done. Sanctification, on the other hand, which begins the moment that we're justified, is a process by which the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus as we walk in faith and obedience. Hebrews 10.14 says that Jesus has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's an ongoing process. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that the Holy Spirit is transforming us into the same image as Jesus from glory to glory. It's, a, it, it's progress. It's change toward, of course, a good result. So justification is a declaration. God imputes righteousness to us, and then he considers us to be righteous, all based upon Jesus. And then when the Holy Spirit takes residence in us, he begins the work of sanctification, okay? Making us more like Christ, who is absolutely righteous. Amen? Okay, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Again, all of this is only possible if Jesus is resurrected. You cannot divide a portion to the dead. I guess you could. Uh, they're not going to be able to enjoy it, okay? Uh, but the dead cannot divide the spoil, can they? They have to be alive. So this all describes a living Christ after death, after the atonement, okay? Who has really mightily conquered his enemy, which is death, and then he plundered the grave and divided the spoils. How does Jesus plunder the grave? The resurrection. On the last day, when he raises the believer, his body, 
He plunders the grave. He takes what is his out of the grave, and it's to be with him forever. It's great, okay? Deliver, he's delivering the believer's soul from eternal death. And I like it. He grants you and I the spoils of heaven because his righteousness has been imputed to us, okay? Good stuff. He was numbered among the transgressors, bearing their sins and interceding for them. Now, where it says that Jesus interceded for the transgressors, it's in the context of, you know, of pouring out his soul into death. So here it is. As the intercessor, Jesus represented the transgressor in judgment before God, who is judge. He stood between God and the sinner, essentially saying, let their guilt pass to me. Let their penalty fall on me. Take me instead. That's vicarious. That's substitutional. Put me in their stead. And so the father let Jesus have it. He poured out all of his wrath on Christ. And so with the father's infinite justice, by way of his eternal wrath, he delivered our souls from death through the blood of his son, imputing his righteousness to our account, which gives us the hope of eternal life. So the question is, what would this holy God do to the one who bore all the sins of humanity? He would crucify him in order to spare humanity. And that's exactly what he did. He predetermined to do it before the creation of the world. He performed it in time and will enjoy the benefits when there's no more time in all of eternity. He was penalized for crimes against heaven. And now every believer stands perfected in God's sight. He will present us spotless in his sight. Amen? Go ahead and stand up. We'll pray. Well, Father, that's the gospel preached in the Old Testament. Of course, it was typified in the sacrifices, all of which were pointing forward until Isaiah just came out and said it, that your servant would come, he would bear our sins in his body, as Peter said, and then he would endure the wrath of God for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that according to your counsel and your wisdom, your knowledge, that you justified many. Thank you for freely giving your life that you might redeem us or you would purchase us, that you would stand in our place in judgment and deliver us from the wrath to come. And it's coming. So Lord, I also pray that if there's anybody here tonight that, does not under, that has not until now understood the gospel, I pray, Lord, that they would repent and they would trust in you. This is the only way. You're not going to create a second way after all you've done with Christ. So Lord, thank you. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.